This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. In 1881, the subjects and dignitaries of the former Ottoman province of Tunis were deeply affected when the French occupied their territory, putting an end to three centuries of Ottoman rule. French colonial rule weighed heavily on Tunisians' minds. Even their bodies seemed to register the blow. Far away in the Italian city of Florence, the health of former Tunisian dignitary Hussein ibn Abdallah deteriorated. The more Hussein rooted himself in Florence, and the more he distanced himself from Tunis, the more physical pain crippled the 60-year-old man. During the winter of 1882, shortly after the French conquest of Tunis, Hussein came down with a fever and remained in his bed for almost two entire months. A little less than four years later, he was no longer able to descend the stairs of his apartment in Florence. The following year, in his final spring, Hussein found himself successively unable to read or even speak. He lost hearing in one ear and could only walk with a cane. In the final days of his life, three nurses and a doctor watched over him day and night. The physical and mental traumas of colonization endured by North Africans such as Hussein were so profound that historians of North Africa have primarily concentrated their studies on colonial shock. But which aspects of colonialism and its terrible effects might someone such as Hussein ibn Abdullah embody? Is he simply a dignitary of Ottoman North Africa undergoing collapse as a new colonial world is emerging? Welcome to the Middle Eastern Studies channel of the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Nancy Ko, speaking today with Mohamed Waldi, who is Associate Professor of History and Near Eastern Studies at Princeton University and full professor at Sciences Po in Paris. And what you just heard was the remarkable opening of Mohammed's latest book, A Slave Between Empires, A Trans-Imperial History of North Africa, published by Columbia University Press in 2020. A sequel of sorts to Mohammed's first book, Esclave et Maître, Les Mamelouks des Bais de Tunis du XVIIe siècle aux années 1880, Slaves and Masters, The Mamluk at the Service of the Tunisian Bays, from the 17th century to the 1880s. A Slave Between Empires investigates a time period that has preoccupied many historians of colonization, from the violent French conquest of Algeria in 1830 to the French invasion of Tunisia in 1881 and their after effects. But as you tell it, Mohammed, the life of Hussein ibn Abdullah and of his estates following his death tell a rather different story about this part of the Mediterranean than merely one of colonial trauma. Can you tell us a bit about how you came upon Hussein 
and why you found him so interesting? Thank you, Nancy, for having me. Uh, so I could say that my story with Hossein is a long one. I came upon Hossein more than 15 years ago when I started to study for my dissertation, the Mamluks, a group that consisted of European slaves converted to Islam and local Muslim freemen who served the Ottoman governors of Tunisia from the 17th century to the end of the 19th century. And this story with Hossein ended last spring when I received a perfect picture of Hossein taken by Parisian photographer Félix Nadar, and that is now on the cover of the book, showing how Hossein could mix European shoes, shirt, bow tie, with North African baggy trousers. So in the history of the Muslim world, Mamluks, like Hossein, have been a major social and political force for more than a thousand years, from the early medieval period to the end of the 19th century. And in Arabic, in this context, the word Mamluk refers to someone who is owned by someone else, who belongs to someone else, and who is therefore literally a slave. Historians have mainly studied this major role of the Mamluks for the Abbasid Empire, or in the case of medieval and modern Egypt, pointing out what they have called the Mamluk enigma, meaning the strange paradox of minorities of slaves and outsiders who were ruling majorities of Muslim free people. Some Orientalists have even seen in this Mamluk enigma clear evidence of the inability of Muslim rulers to rely on their own free subjects. And therefore, Mamluks were seen as the very reason for an ongoing gap between states and societies in the Muslim world. So in my first book, published in French by Sorbonne University Press, I wanted to look at the understudied case of the Mamluks in Ottoman Tunisia in order to stand against this Orientalist approach and to argue that Mamluks did not create a gap between sovereigns and their own subjects. But precisely because Mamluks could be slaves converted to Islam, and they could be as well free Muslim Tunisians, they allowed their masters, their governors, the governors of Tunisia, to create forms of social distinctions and connection within the Tunisian society. So now you are asking about uh, the reason why I found Hossein so interesting. Yes, in that context, and as you say in the book, so Hussein himself um, is a Circassian slave who converts to Islam. What was it about him in particular that caught your interest um, in contrast to the numerous other Mamluks that you uh, came across? So I could say that each and every Mamluk is interesting, but what I found absolutely fascinating about Hussein's case is that he was one of the first Tunisian officials sidelined and rejected by the French when they took over Tunisia in 1881. And he was one of the last Mamluks in Ottoman Tunisia, one of the last slaves from the Caucasus, serving Tunisian provincial governors with the end of slave trade in the Mediterranean. And he was as well the first mayor of Tunis, the main city of Tunisia. He was also the first minister of education in Tunisia. So Hussein's story 
is at the same time about colonialism in North Africa and about the Ottomanness of North Africa. On the one hand, it's clearly about colonial trauma. Not no one can deny the deep violence of French, Spanish, and Italian colonizations in the Maghreb. However, on the other hand, Hussein's life and his afterlife underscore a major aspect of this North African history that historians have clearly underestimated, namely the various Ottoman legacies that were still shaping Tunisian, Algerian, and Libyan societies as well, up until the end of the First World War, when the Ottoman Empire eventually collapsed. And the book is clearly arguing for history that would bring together both this Ottoman and colonial dimension of modern North Africa. I should add that what is also compelling about Hussein's case is that he lived in exile in Italy for nearly nearly two decades. In Tuscany, he represented Tunisian official interests from the 1870s until he passed away in Florence in 1887. Such exile is extremely interesting as well for at least two reasons. First, it reminds us the extent to which Italy was a major political scene for North Africans and for Ottomans throughout the 19th century, and therefore that the history of colonial uh, North Africa is a Mediterranean history, as shown recently by historians Murray Lewis and Julia Clancy-Smith. And second reason why Hussein's exile in Italy is interesting is that this exile is part of a broader history of Muslims in early modern Europe that historians like Jocelyn Dahlia, Nabil Matar, and Ian Kohler started to write for more than a decade now. That's fascinating. So in some, what you've done here is something I think unusual and brave at this point in the literature, which is to use the life and afterlife of one person, of Hussein, as an aperture through which to understand North Africa as a whole and its imbrication with all kinds of contexts. And I was particularly struck um, by your discussion in the book about um, Hussein's status, as you say, as one of the last male Circassian slaves at a time when attitudes towards slavery in the empire were changing in the 1830s, and as Ottoman slavery was being imagined in relation to, to bring in yet another context, to the very different context of American and Atlantic slavery. So I wonder, how did Hussein's own attitudes towards slavery lead you to break with the tendencies of North African historiography and of, I suppose, colonial historiographies more broadly? So to reply to to your question, I would mention a document that might be surprising or a bit puzzling for the ones who are kindly listening to this podcast. So this document is a letter that Hussein wrote uh, to the U.S. Consul in 1864, so one year before the end of the civil war in the U.S. In this letter, Hussein, who was himself, as you say, the slave, did not hesitate to lecture the U.S. Consul by clearly advocating for the abolition of slavery. So Hussein wrote that, I quote, universal freedom and the non-existence of slavery would have a deep effect on refining a man's manners as well on the development of culture. So now one could read Hussein's letter to the U.S. Consul as an evidence of a so-called 
Tunisian exception in the sense that historians of modern Tunisia have often emphasized the fact that Tunisia was the first Muslim country to abolish slave trade from 1841 to 1846. Other historians of North Africa and more broadly of the Muslim world would see in this letter another sort of evidence of a North African slash Muslim involvement in a global debate about abolition, arguing that European countries, and more precisely British diplomacy, were not the only forces to push for the abolition of slavery uh, in the Mediterranean, and that Muslims too were absolutely involved and had a role in this abolition. So in the book, I wanted to add another analytical layer than the, these two ones. I wanted to argue that Hossein's intervention in this debate about the abolition of slavery could be seen as the outcome of major transformations across empires, or at least as the outcome of two trans-imperial transformations. First, Hussein became in North Africa one of the last slaves hailing from the Caucasus at a specific time when the competition between Russian and Ottoman empires in the Caucasus resulted in an actual ending of the trade of Circassian slaves in the 1860s. And second major transformations, uh, second major transformation, the state reform across various empires including across the Ottoman lands, meaning, for instance, the Tanzimat in the Ottoman Empire, changed the power dynamic between free men and slaves, as argued by historians throughout Sevi. With the implementation of bureaucratic reforms uh, and the creation of new administrations, the governors of Tunisia, for instance, no longer needed to rely on Mamluks, for administrative and military tasks. And for the first time with the implementation of this reform, Tunisian governors started to hire and to promote to the highest state positions free men who were born, raised, and educated in Tunisia. So one could say that Hossein also went with the flow following provincial and global transformations. That's absolutely fascinating. And I think one of the things that's striking about the document you bring up is the very different kind of moral content of slavery um, for Hossein uh, than might be the case for other historical subjects that we can imagine. And I'm struck, for example, by his mention of culture. Um, And it made me think a lot of Nahdawi discourse um, at the time. We typically think of the Nahda or the Arab Renaissance, as centered in the Levant, especially in the port cities of Syria and Lebanon, um, whose merchant families were, in fact, the origins of many a Nahdawi intellectual. But in reading Hussein's discourse about slavery and refinement, I can't help but think of Nahdawi discourse about tarbiya or cultivation, and tahdib al-akhlaq, or the refinement of morals. So to what extent might you actually consider Hussein and perhaps North Africa more widely as a part of this picture? Yeah, that's a great question that reminds us the many connections between North Africa and the Levant. In fact, Maghribi societies, and in particular Mamluks in Tunisia, such as Hussein, and North African Muslim scholars, such as Hussein's friend and main secretary, Sheikh Bouhajib, were clearly part 
of the intellectual picture of the Nahda. For instance, Hussein played a major role in setting up the first Tunisian state-sponsored newspaper in Arabic by the late 1850s. And by the end of the next decade, in Egypt, in Cairo, the same Hussein interacted with major Egyptian scholars, such as well-known Rifa'at Dahtawi. And later on, In 1884, by the end of Hussein's life, Hussein funded an Arabic weekly that two major Islamic reformists and thinkers, Jamal al-Din al-Avrani and Muhammad Abdu, were running and publishing in Paris. So these are very few examples to begin with. Again, mentioning these few instances is not a way to brag about a so-called Tunisian exception in the Maghreb. Algerians and Moroccans were also involved in these intellectual discussions. Rather, bringing back North Africans in this intellectual moment is again a way to underline the ongoing connections between the Western and the Eastern part of the Muslim world. Some strong connections that colonial history and above all French imperial history have either ignored or purely and simply dismissed. Mm. So on the one hand, a slave between empires, as you say, emphasizes the eclecticism of Hussein's interests, his attachments, his deep attachments to European, to Ottoman, to Maghrebi influences. Yet eventually, you write, Hussein distanced himself from Europe. What happened in his life to motivate that shift? And how was that distancing reflected in his documents? Yeah, so I think, and I show that there was a major shift in Hussein's life and his in his perceptions of European societies by the late 1860s and the early 1870s, so some years before the French occupation of Tunisia. And one can witness the same kind of deep change in other writings uh, by Tunisian officials during the same period. So up until the mid-1860s, Hussein, like other Tunisian officials who were involved in the implementation of state Ottoman reforms, saw themselves as being on an equal footing with Europeans. And reformers like Hussein even advocated for the enactment of a constitution in Tunisia that was inspired by European constitution. However, by the mid-1860s, these Tunisian reformers started to lose political battles and to acknowledge their own failure. When, for instance, the Tunisian constitution was revoked in 1864 after the violent suppression of a major revolt against the state reforms, or even three years later in 1867 when the Tunisian state went bankrupt and when Europeans were now in charge of managing Tunisian public finances in a new institution called the Tunisian International Finance Commission. So Hussein understood that the power dynamic was clearly shifting in favor of European powers, and it's clearly in exile in Italy that Hussein started to take a more explicit pro-Ottoman and pro-Islamic stance. He not only distanced himself from Europe, but as well from North African Jews, whom Hussein accused of siding with Europeans. So it's in Italy, and clearly under European influence, 
that Hussein started to blame the Jews and even to promote anti-Semitic ideas, such as the ideas of Edouard Drummond in the book La France Juive. In this book, Drummond claimed that Jewish holders of Tunisian debt were the ones who convinced the French officials to invade Tunisia in 1881. So the, the influence of Drummond, uh, of Drummond's anti-Semitic ideas, reflect yet another aspect of Hossein's ambivalence. Hossein was distancing himself from Europe while embracing, embracing ideas from some of the worst European thinkers like Drummond. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, I think that the shift in Hussein's views and his adoption of um, anti-European and then anti-Jewish views especially came into view when you describe, as you briefly mentioned, Hussein's attempts to defend his rights to land in the port city of Halqawadi, or La Gulet, against the Tunisian International Finance Commission, and I think that was in the 1870s. And I wondered when I was reading that, do Hussein's moral shift and struggle reflect wider changes in the North African social landscape? So I think that, like for many other North Africans in this competition with Europeans, even before the actual colonization of Tunisia, what became crucial for Hussein and other Tunisians was land ownership and how to defend their rights to land from European capitalism and then from European settlers. So in the second book, uh, in the second chapter of the book, I show that Hussein, like many North African elites, did not invest in Europe. Hussein did not even care about his material life in Italy. He was, for instance, only renting apartments in Florence. What was clearly at stake was his lands in Tunisia, and especially in the port city of Halqalwed, a port city that was uh, undergoing massive changes in the 1860s when Italian workers flocked to this port and when British companies invested in railroad that would connect Halqalwet to the main city of Tunis. So in the 1860s, two decades before the French occupation of Tunisia, Tunisian officials like Hossein used various Islamic legal tools to fund the development of the port city of Halqalwet. They created foundations or qaf that could be neither bought or sold, and they also relied on specific types of lease contracts to rent these lands to Europeans. I argue that these officials, while still referring to Islamic law, were actually involved in the same debates about private property and public lands, public domains, uh, that were occurring across the world. I also show that in addition to these legal choices, Hossein developed moral ideas not only to defend his own rights to land, but also to perpetuate Tunisian elite domination over local resources. By the end of the 1870s, Hossein stated 
in explicit terms that Tunisian people and their elites could only rent lands to Europeans and that they should never sell their properties to the same Europeans, even if it was legal. So now, did this, tra- did this strategy work? Uh, Tunisian elites might have developed tools and moral ideas to protect their land ownership, but like Algerians before them. And like Moroccans after 1912, Tunisians did not avoid colonial dispossession. Uh, Tunisians did not avoid colonial dispossession. So still, I do think that it's important to understand and reconstruct what were the terms of the debate about land ownership throughout the 19th century to understand the background of anti-colonial resistance in the first half of the 20th century. So via this period of Hussein's life, and as you say, where ideas about land ownership are becoming normatively inflected, we've arrived at a colonial setting in which tensions are high and conflicts over estates become a kind of petri dish for moral discourses. Um, It is worth mentioning here a deep irony, I think, uh, that the Tunisian government itself, deep in debt to European creditors, had created the International Finance Commission under pressure by those very creditors, as you point out, by France, Britain, and Italy. And this reminds me very much of Maurizio Lazzarato's argument about governing by debt. And yet, as you write, neither Hussein nor French colonial representatives quite had full control over the legal disputes or their outcomes or their larger consequences. So can you illustrate for us a little bit this unpredictability and the increasing entanglement uh, between Tunisian and European uh, law that resulted? Right. So while the two first chapters of the book deal with the life of Hussein in a trans-imperial context, the next three chapters analyze legal conflicts over Hussein's estate and other kinds of international legal conflict. This is important for uh, the main argument of the book because Hussein's time meaning the second half of the 19th century, has a moment of financial globalization, was a period of tough competition over lands and assets that prompted huge legal conflicts before and during the colonial period. So at that time, Hussein was involved in two major international legal conflicts. He represented the Tunisian state interests, first in the 1850s, against a former Tunisian tax collector named Mahmoud Ben Hayed, one of the first North African state officials fleeing to France after embezzling public funds. And then Hossein was involved in the 1870s, yet in a similar case against another Tunisian official called Nassim Shemama, a Tunisian Jew who, like Ben Ayad, left Tunis for France and then Italy after here again misappropriating Tunisian public funds. So now legal historians and historians of colonialism have already shown the importance of these litigations and the extent to which these daily legal disputes have deeply shaped the colonial legal systems. But in the book, I argue that these legal conflicts were as well instrumental in revealing other broader historical transformation within Mediterranean societies. So these conflicts over Ben Hayyad, Shemama, and Hossein's estates contributed to re- reinforce 
the legal and financial relationships between Tunisia and Europe, more than three decades before the French conquest of Tunisia. Moreover, North African actors involved in these legal conflicts use each and every litigation and the moral discourses behind these legal cases as tools in order to act against European powers, including during the colonial period. Hussein, for instance, wanted to complicate the litigation and not to solve them in order to act through these litigations. But here, neither Hussein nor the French colonial authorities had full control over legal disputes for at least two reasons. First, they could not clearly control all the intermediaries involved in these legal disputes. For instance, the translators and brokers of Jewish origin working for Hussein in Italy used the same legal disputes to turn against the Tunisian state and to negotiate with the French state new social position in colonial Tunisia. Second reason why, in fact, it was complicated to control these uh, litigations, uh, the context of legal pluralism per se made these legal cases even more complex because these legal cases prompted in a context of legal pluralism, increased production of legal documents that neither the Ottomans nor the French could fully grasp or even translate. I guess that my point here is to say that legal disputes do not only tell us something about the shaping of colonial legal systems, but they do underline as well the limits and the flows of the same colonial systems. That's fascinating. And so what we're seeing here is the development of, again, a kind of moral discourse um, that exists sort of independent to, previous to, and then sort of contemporaneously with uh, colonial politics. But there is also nothing about Hussein's life, and I think you argue as well about the colonial period in North Africa, that fits easily into binaries of colonizer colonized or geographies of Europe versus North Africa or even a self-founded Tunisia. In fact, it is precisely the mixedness of these categories um, that makes such moral discourses possible. Um, and I think this became especially clear in this amazing scene we arrive at in the beginning of chapter five. And you're talking about the afterlife of Hussein's estates. So after Hussein's death, all the parties interested in his estate or the representatives quite literally squeeze themselves into the archives of the French chancellery to contest their claims. And now that you've taken their place in those very archives, can you talk a bit about the afterlife of Hussein's property and how it continued to betray or reinforce these categories? I mean, you refer in the book to the lasting significance, for example, of households, families, and lineage in the modern and colonial history of Tunisia. What do you mean by that? So I should not spoil maybe the end of the story, but suffice it to say that the main winner in the story was the family of Sheikh Bouhajeb, who was a well-known Tunisian scholar and a close friend to Hossein and his main secretary in the 1860s. So Sheikh Bouhajeb and his sons were the ones who finally managed Hossein's properties in the port city of Halqalwaid. And their main house, 
in the same port city and the Bouhajib household maintained strong connections with the Ottoman Levant. That this is absolutely interesting. For instance, the Bouhajib family hosted the Egyptian scholar Muhammad Abdu during his two visits to Tunis in 1884 and then in 1903. And one of Sheikh Bouhajib's sons uh, married uh, to Princess Nazli, who was the niece of Khedif Ismail, the ruler of, of Egypt from 1863 to 1879. So what is more, one of the two girls that Hossein raised in Tuscany in the 1880s, a girl named Maria or Miriam, left Italy to live among the Buhajib in Tunisia. And Maria or Miriam was then married to a Tunisian political leader, a major leader, Ali Bashamba, who was expelled from Tunisia by French authorities before playing a major role in Istanbul during the First World War and even in the Armenian genocide. So historians of the Ottoman Empire, like Leslie Pierce and Janet Away, have underlined the political importance of these households across the empire during the early modern period. As I quote, unit of political as well social organization. And all the deep connections that the Buhajib household in Tunis kept or developed with the Levant show the lasting importance of households in still linking some North African colonized families to major Ottoman centers. And I think that we still need to write this history of North African families that challenge the main narrative and character categories of French colonial history because they show something completely different in terms of the social history of the Maghreb during the colonial period. I think this focus um, that you're calling for on family attachments um, is a very exciting one. And on that note, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that a slave between empires is a masterclass in how to untangle the relationship between the personal and the political. As we saw, you opened the story of Hussein ibn Abdullah with an appreciation of what Joseph Mas'ad might perhaps refer to as colonial effects. Yet, the later years of Hussein's life were also a time when, as you describe it, Muhammad, the rights of former Ottoman slaves converged with those of so-called freeborn men, and the rights of Christian and Jewish minorities in the Ottoman Empire started to align with those of Muslims before, of course, Muslims' rights were restricted during colonial times. And I wonder um, how you perceive the relationship between Hossein's maneuvers and, on the one hand, and Ottoman legacies or colonial domination on the other. I mean, how do you handle that sort of moral ambiguity in the archive? I think that the question of moral ambiguity in the archive, or even the question about the relationships between Hossein's maneuvers and colonial domination, are essential, though tricky questions. Because if the book is indeed about the specific case of Hossein and about the agency of colonized subjects who, like Hossein, used to be officials in the Ottoman state, the main argument is rather about the overlapping of colonial and Ottoman history in North Africa, meaning that you're right. I think that we cannot completely guess what was the actual agenda of Hossein, and it's not easy to find out to what extent the agency of Hossein 
was in fact so important that he could fight against uh, the French bureaucracy and the French colonial domination. So the book raises, therefore, a question that subaltern studies, historians of the Ottoman Levant and historians like Romain Bertrand have already phrased as a question about how can we write a history that takes into account colonial domination, colonial violence, and yet other dimensions of history? How do we combine these dimensions of history? Again, this book does not deny the major impact of European colonialism and its deep traumatic violence. Rather, it seeks to further our understanding of the colonial period. The French invasion of Tunisia is indeed a milestone in the history of this region. But the book also shows to what extent the 1920s and the final collapse of the Ottoman Empire was as well turning points for the history of the Maghreb. It shows, for instance, that during the 1920s, the pro-Ottoman leaders in the Maghreb gave way to local nationalist movements based on political parties. And it was after the 1920s that for many Tunisians, Istanbul was no longer a major political center that, and that instead Cairo became this vibrant political metropolis for a new generation of North African nationalists. Thank you so much, Mohamed, uh, for your time and for writing a book um, that attempts successfully, I think, uh, to manage all of these very different and conflicting phenomena. Uh, as a closing question, if I may ask, what are you working on now? I mean, what's the next project on the horizon? You may, and you're welcome to us. So this year, I started to supervise a new research project at Sciences Po Paris about slave testimonies in North Africa and the Western Mediterranean between the mid-18th century and the 1930s. So this project is funded by a European Research Council grant for five years, and it will allow me and my team of researchers to collect documents written by slaves or primary sources where slaves conveyed fragments and elements about their own lives. And we hope that we will investigate four groups of slaves. First, North African Muslim and Jewish men and women who were enslaved in Europe until the end of the 18th century, as well as European enslaved in the Maghreb until the first decades of the 19th century. And the third group will consist of Mamluks like Hussein and concubines hailing from the Caucasus and from Greece. And finally, we will work on the most important group for this uh, project, meaning Western and Eastern African men and women who became slaves in North Africa or transited from this region to end their lives in Asia, Europe, and in some cases in North America. So the main goal of this project is to renew our approach of the end of slavery in the Maghreb. So far, and we uh, refer to that in this interview, historians have explained the abolition of slavery and the slow vanishing of slavery in North Africa either as the outcome of European imperialistic interventions or to a lesser extent 
as a result of debates among Muslim scholars and local leaders who own slaves. And so in this project, we seek instead to interpret the end of slavery through the testimonies of those who experienced and acted for the end of slavery, namely slaves themselves and their families. So far and before the COVID crisis, I was lucky to find fascinating slave testimonies in the Italian and Spanish archives to recover other voices and other lives than Hossein's life between empires. Thank you so much, Mohammed. And I think that all of us listening here are eagerly awaiting your next book. Thank you. Thank you.